So this morning is January 19th, 2014. Our message this morning is called Sledgehammer. And I'm excited to be here. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. Message today is Sledgehammer. Numbers 35. I laid the vision of the church this year before our overseers and they were excited. They blessed the name of the Lord and encouraged us to move forward with it. What an amazing year 2013 was. We planted two churches. We did $113,000 worth of missions work in a church this size. Look around you. There's no Bentleys in the parking lot. There are just people who are in love with the Lord. More than 35% of everything that came in this ministry went right out the door to the needy and the hurting and the orphans and the widows of the world. And you know what? This year we're going to turn out some lives that know how to duplicate that. That'll take it to the furthest ends of the earth. You're going to carry it to places that I'll never get to. You're going to teach it in languages that I'll never know how to speak. The living God is good. He is going to spread this around the world. Numbers 35 and verse 34 is an interesting verse. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. What an amazing concept. You know, in today's vernacular, we've got a bunch of words for where you live. You know, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I spent a couple decades of my life, the kids would look at you and say, where you stay? Our lives had become so migratory. Our homes had become so temporary that we no longer said, where do you live? We said, where do you stay? Because you stay somewhere right now and next month, mom and dad might not be together and you stay somewhere else. You sleep on somebody's couch this week because it's available, but next week it might not be. It was a way to indicate to the world that we were kind of transient. It used to be a time period that when you asked somebody where they lived, it was a home that they owned. Renting, leasing, those kind of things were rare. We were an ownership society. In Israel, God said, do not defile the land where you live. That word in Hebrew is yasab. And where I dwell, shakan. For I, the Lord, dwell, shakan, among the Israelites. The difference between yasab and shakan is to live indicates a temporary residence. It's I'm here, but I might not be here later. It's where I stay. But to shakan was to be intertwined in a very permanent way with the place you were dwelling. God said, you may live here, but I dwell here. You may stay here, but I am intricately intertwined with this place. The Bible is largely the story of a God who loved a people and blessed them and put them in a land. And he told us about what we would inherit and what we would become. It's true that we are transient on the earth, 
We simply yasab here. We simply live here. It is not our permanent home in a manner of speaking because we are being renovated and so is it. And our permanent dwelling, our shakan, is in the presence of the Lord. Can you tell me? Brent, you own a few rent houses. Is there a difference between someone who intends to stay somewhere 20 years and someone who intends to stay somewhere two weeks? Their investment in your property is completely different, isn't it? I want to ask you something. Does the Lord live with you or does the Lord dwell in you? Do you have a temporary relationship with him? Or are you so intertwined that it's permanent? Let me ask you another way since we got some, some engaged couples in here. Do we date the Lord? Are we in covenant married to the Lord? Do we think about him twice a week and show up in pretty clothes and drop some change in his box to make ourselves feel better about our neglect? Or do you go to bed thinking about him and wake up thinking about him every day? Oh man, when you're in love with somebody, when you love somebody like I love Miss Jennifer, you might carry their picture around with you. You might look for ways to work them into the conversations you're having with other people. You can't wait to present them to your friends. You can't wait to present them in your workplace. The very first sales job I ever got in my life, man says, why should I hire you? You have no sales experience. I pulled my wedding picture out and said, don't I? He hired me. When you love somebody, you can't help but let everyone know it. If you get to somebody's wedding and the groom doesn't look happy, don't witness that wedding. Stand up and walk out and protest. If they're not beaming with joy on the day of their covenant, what's it going to be like in 20 years? If our love for Jesus is any less than a bride and groom on their wedding day, then it is lacking and needs to be fanned. It needs to be blown upon. It needs a furnace of heavenly fire stoking its soul because he's worth it. He is is glory itself. The living God is permanently intertwined with this creation. He loves it. He cares for it. And he cares for you, saints. Oh, Jesus. Turn with me to Exodus 25. If you're not all that familiar with the Old Testament, show up on a Monday night. I'm teaching the book of Revelation, and you will learn the 39 books of the Tanakh while you learn the book of Revelation. Show up here on a Sunday morning. You'll find out that you can't get to the second floor of a building without walking through its first floor. The Older Testament teaches us in shadow and type of the realities that are found in Christ. And to neglect it is to not understand Christ. It's to look at him in two dimensions when you could see him in three or maybe even, praise God, four. Are you in Exodus 25? Look at the eighth verse. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them. 
Make no mistake, God did not say, I will yasab in this sanctuary. He did not say, I will be there in a temporary way. He didn't say, I would just stay there. The words that he used were shakan, and it had to do with a permanent commingling, intertwining of himself with that place. When you say uh, that you worship the Lord our God, he is the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the king of Israel, the God of Israel. He is forever intertwined with his people. He is a covenant-keeping God who is faithful to his people. The question has never been, is God faithful to keep his covenant? The question is, does he have a faithful partner in the covenant? Friends, our lives answer that question today. He said to them, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. There's a reason that there was a pattern. The eighth chapter of Hebrews and uh, goes on to teach us that Moses saw a pattern in heaven and he made copies on the earth. But you've heard that from me before. The issue here today is not about furniture. The issue is when a man looks into the heavens and he sees a pattern, why is it important that you know the pattern? Why would he take the time to put a replica of something on the earth that exists in the heavens. What is the scripture not just saying to the world about it, but what is the scripture saying to you personally about it? See, we can all agree that God is good. We can all agree that Jesus came to save the world, but it's when he's been good to you and he has saved you that it has special significance. We can all agree that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's when you personally feel convicted as a sinner and are liberated by the power of the Holy Ghost that that takes on special meaning. So we can agree that these words are true and it does nothing for you. The demons know that it's true. It's when it becomes true to you in a new and inspired way, when God gives you a personal application for it that you can obey, that suddenly it takes on a new meaning. In this way, the word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's also useful for teaching and correcting, and rebuking, and training in righteousness, the Word of God will teach us. So let me ask you, when you read these next few verses, they could be meaningless details. Verse 10, have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Why on earth is God giving you the dimensions of His furniture? It's like a pastor talking about his pulpit. What difference does it make? Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. What difference does it make, and why does he give us an order? I want to share with you today the way in which these things were made. I want to share with you today the reason that God tells you the substances they're made of. The reason he tells you the order in which you were to do it. Because friends, if you've never been overlaid with gold on the inside, it'll never show up on the outside. 
There is an order and there is a process. And you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. When you have a fundamental change of nature, suddenly your actions change. When you find out you have a new identity in Christ, you suddenly become like Christ. All the rest is window dressing. It's actually a fig leaf disguise. But the living God did not want such a thing for us. He wanted us to understand the process. Turn to Exodus 37. I build things almost every week. It's a joke that people say, you're a pastor, what do you do during the week? <laughs> like, come hang out with me, you'll find out. Can you put in a toilet? Can you fix a garbage disposal? Roof a house? Install an air conditioning unit? Can you do it while counseling single men? Can you do it while... Counseling Christians that have been saved longer than you've been alive, can you do it while talking to somebody in India and Africa and Germany who all want equal shares of your time? How do you get calluses like these on your hands? Are they from turning pages in a Bible? <laughs> what do you do all day? All day long, I am being inlaid with gold and I am being overlaid with gold and sometimes it is a hammering process. I have been hurt, I have been confused, and I have been excited and I've been enthused. Sometimes the Lord our God seemed to be trying to kill me in my own thoughts, and other times I recognized he was just trying to shape me. Boy, didn't Brother Lahan have a good message Wednesday night. He put pressure on me and He soaked me in the Holy Ghost and He forced me into circumstances I never would have chosen because He was teaching me to become pliable in His presence so that I could be shaped by Him. A man saw into the heavens a pattern and God told him to go grab earthly things and He would make something that was heavenly. And we say, oh, it's just details. You know, it's so many feet by so many feet. Why would the inspired Word of God contain such details? In the 37th chapter of Exodus, we start with the first verse. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made gold moldings around it. He cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. Am I the only one that could read that and think we were reading a Haynes manual for repair on automobiles? Or read that and go... Did I mistakenly pick up a copy of Home Repair magazine? Why are we describing dimensions and types of wood? How many of you have built a dog house or built a house or built something made of wood in your life? Don't be ashamed. Get your hands high. These days, it's a rare commodity. Men don't know how to do anything anymore. Ladies, don't marry a man who can't do anything. Make him learn to change a tire because you don't want to do it on the side of the road, I promise. The way that the living God described these things was intentional. When we went to Mexico to build our last church there, 
to put a roof on it, it was necessary that we find timber of a certain kind. It was necessary that it be in certain lengths and certain thicknesses because it had a certain load to bear. Now, I love mesquite. We call it Texas olive wood. This altar over here is mesquite. This pulpit is mesquite. What makes these rare is that it's hard to find mesquite in sufficient size to make objects like this. And you could never build a house out of mesquite. It'd have to be a house for dolls or something. Acacia wood is the biblical shittim tree. Acacia tree. They go by both names. It's all over Africa. It's all over the Middle East. In this picture over here, it's in the bottom left-hand corner. It's a tree that fans out at the top. They call them desert air conditioners because the only place they grow in arid lands is where the wind has swept the seeds along some trail or riverbed. And eventually there was water or rain and it caused the seed to grow. So if you can find an acacia tree in the desert, you know that you have shade from the sun. You know there are breezes, at least occasionally. And at some point there's water. They call them desert air conditioners. But the thing about the acacia tree is it's not like an oak. Its branches up top are not very impressive. And its root system below is pretty darn pathetic. It doesn't stretch out in every direction. An acacia tree does one thing. It digs deep, 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 straight down into the earth looking for a rock or something to anchor its root system on. An acacia tree is deeply rooted in the earth. And while its wood is beautiful, I mean, once you cut it and once you hewn it, once you plane it and you get it into the shapes that you want, it could be mistaken for some of our most beautiful white woods. But that's not the way that it starts. It's thorny. It's orangey brown. It's got sharp, sometimes poisonous bark all over it. What could God be trying to tell us? You want to make something that is an ark of testimony for me. You want to carry something around on men's shoulders to tell the world about my glory, about my name? You go dig up and cut down that deeply rooted thorny tree. You strip off all of its outer protectiveness. Why do trees have thorns, man? They're in chemical warfare. They're trying to fend off predators. You find out people are exactly the same way. Maybe the person who was rude to you in Walmart or Home Depot had simply been hurt and didn't want to be hurt again. Or did you think the whole world revolved around you and your pain? Oh, we can be so selfish sometimes. We're driving in traffic and who does that guy think he is? Well, he's probably convinced he's just as right as you think you are right now. Sometimes the thorny exterior is simply a response to the environment. Can we all say that we know what it's like to live in a gutter? Then everybody's going to have some thorns, friends. Let's think about it. How open and loving are you to the average stranger you meet? Does it matter where your geography is? Does it matter whether it's bright noonday or deep nighttime? Does it matter if you're in an elevator or a parking garage or a soccer field? Does your social behavior change based on your circumstances? Don't lie to me. Give me an answer. Yes. Of course it does. You'd be stupid for it not to. 
There are some areas that are more prone to danger. There are some times where it is more likely to happen. We often think that it's wrong to judge those circumstances. I invite you to completely ignore them and see how that will work. Act like it's just no big deal to go hang out with the cartel in Mexico. I mean, we don't want to stereotype. We're not stereotyping if somebody's pointing a gun at your head, friends. Why, though, do they have guns? Why does anybody do the things they do? I'm not saying it's all environment. I'm saying the environment of the soil of their heart is just as yucky as the environment outside. But it does make a difference. Are you more likely to be mean to somebody if you've had a bad day? And if everything's peachy keen, you're more likely to be nice, right? So why do you think somebody's being mean to you? Is it possible that they're having a bad day? The living God wanted to teach us how to unroot somebody from the earth. He wanted to teach us how he strips away thorny materials. And it reveals something that's beautiful inside, something useful for his purposes. The living God wants to remold us and it starts by inlaying you with gold. It starts by putting something divine inside of you. And once that's happened, then he starts working on the outside of you. There is an order to it. And then he starts parading you around his creation as a testimony of his name. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Is there a man or woman in the building that is not who they used to be? Is there a man or woman in the building that has been given a new name? A man or woman in the building that today is a better representative of Christ than yesterday? This is the process, friends. And he furnished his house with objects to teach us about it. Amen? Let's get back to the Word. Where were we? Uh, Six. He made an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Now, I often have wondered what that meant. Brother Rick mentioned gold. Gold is one of those beautiful things. A lot of people use it to symbolize their marriage covenant. Some of us have run our hand under the wrong kind of water and found out that the gold we used to symbolize a pure covenant was not as pure as we thought it was. Rick told us that gold is malleable, that he had a high tensile strength, that it could be used for all kinds of things. Its electroconductivity properties were amazing. All kind of things, but that's not why you buy it, is it? Why do you have gold on your hands, ladies? Because it's precious. I want you to see something in the book of Lamentations. Keep your finger in the book of Exodus. Would somebody say, oh no, he's preaching from Lamentations? There was a day when men lamented sin. Look at the fourth chapter and first verse. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are shattered. At the head of every street, 
how the precious sons of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay and the work of potter's hands. Is that sad? You can answer me, is that sad? God said they were worth their weight in gold, but the gold lost its luster. In the book of Lamb, what you're seeing me do right now is flip through scripture cards I carry every day. Amen. In Lamentations, the second chapter, you hear how the gold lost its luster. It's the second chapter in the 14th verse. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. How did the gold lose its luster? They surrounded themselves with people that failed to correct them, that lied to them, that told them they were doing all right when they were not doing all right. All of their preaching, all of their teaching failed to ward off captivity. So what was once worth its very weight in gold is now as common as dirt. All saints, do you want to be made of dirt or made of gold? Because when he wanted to form something out of gold, he put a hammer to it. Say, well, what kind of hammer? There's a jeweler's hammer. That's the kind I would want. Teeny little hammer. Might as well put a pink handle on it. Man, if your wife gives you a tool set trying to encourage you and you open it and the screwdrivers are pink, give it back. Man will remain nameless, but I went to his house to teach him to fix something because I don't mind doing it for you once or twice. After that, I expect you to know. And he was excited because he had a tool set and he went and opened it and I thought it was made by Barbie. But this is, this is like a, the American gospel. Oh, pastor, use tools, but they need to be fit for Barbie, not warriors. Oh, pastor, hit me with a hammer. We love the truth. Here's your hammer, pastor. We use about that much of the word. We use the weight of the word about that much. And then we're offended if you can make a mark with somebody with it. The question becomes, is it a jeweler's hammer? Is it a finished carpenter's hammer? Is it a 12-ounce hammer? Is it a 27-ounce California East Wing framing hammer? That seemed like such a good idea when I was 18. Now I'm sore after I've used it for 30 minutes, so I bought an air compressor. Is it a 5-pound sledge or a 16-pound mole? Do you want a sledgehammer in your life or do you want a finishing hammer because God owns them all? Now, why is he striking the gold? Is it because he hates it? Well, the gold probably thinks so. How many of you this week have had a collision that you thought, I'm not going back and doing that anymore? We love to quote the Proverbs, iron sharpens iron until it starts to happen. Till there's a little smoke, little fire, and pieces of us are being chipped off. Say, but I was mostly right. Well, that's the way collisions work. Everybody thinks they're in the right or you wouldn't collide. 
Why is God hammering the gold? He's shaping it. And friends, I find it hilarious that you're going to expensive homes, nice homes, and they have paid somebody to give their furniture a hammered look. Oh, this is so much like the modern church. We don't really want to be hammered. We just want the hammered finish, you know. Can you give me a faux paint finish? Is there, can, can, we, can we just put the sticker on it that says hammered? Do I really have to go through that process? And the answer for every Christian, this one included, is a big resounding yes. If you want to become something fit for the use of God, then the strike that you thought was meant to kill you later is simply a beauty mark. The strike that you thought was just for a beauty mark actually moved. Al said I had a furniture problem. My chest had fallen in my drawers. Maybe God's just rearranging your shape. Some vessels are noble and some ignoble, McLovin. Don't laugh. What I'm trying to tell you, saints, is he has the right to form us in any way he wants to form us. And he told his anointed craftsman to use a hammer on the gold because he wanted it inside you and he wanted it outside of you. Amen. Amen. Now, when he hammered the gold, it began to do something in chapter 37. He made the atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. He made one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. And the two ends, he made them of one piece with the cover. That's a really interesting structure, isn't it? We have one cherub and we have another cherub and yet somehow or another they're connected as one piece with a cover. What do we call things that are three in one? Yeah. If they're one in Hebrew, you call it ihad. Maybe a Christian theologian might call it triunity. Maybe an ancient theologian might call it trinity. But the living God will hammer you into something that resembles His likeness. He will hammer you into something that teaches about Him everywhere you go. I talked to the man Randy who has a shop just down from us. Randy didn't know who to hire some time ago. Uh, how long you been there, Jacob? Where you at? One year ago. He's like, I don't know who to hire. If you know anybody, could you help me? I said, oh, we can help you. We will send you the best employees you've ever had. He took Jacob. He came back to me a couple weeks later. He said, he really is a fine young man. I said, he better be. He said, he does the things that we ask him without arguing. He's happy all of the time. And he's got great integrity. So one year later, he came and he said, hey, do you know anybody else? I said, yeah, I know a young man named Cody. Your dog bit him last time he saw him. He said, I feel really bad about that. Send him down, I'll hire him. Sometime you got to take a little dog bite to get where you need to be. He just came back and was talking with Jennifer and I. I said, that young man you sent us was fine. I said, he better be. He kind of paused. He's surprised. Apparently, he doesn't have that kind of hiring record normally. I said, you see, we think the best way to witness is not just, just to thump a Bible. 
I mean, I'll do it. But it's not just the best way. We think that when someone works hard, they're put in difficult circumstances and they're full of joy, that it will make guys like you, Randy, ask them, what's the reason you are the way you are? And this gives us an opportunity to tell you who shaped us, who formed us, and what we're made of, not just on the outside for the world to see, but on the inside where it matters. I suspect Randy will be having a conversation with these two young men soon because he's intrigued. He's intrigued. Apparently, he's only ever met Christians that wore a gold veneer. They got the gold grill, but it's just plated plastic. And now he's finding some that are something else. How did they get that way? Why can I brag on young men? Is it the product of a church? No. Is it the product of a doctrine? No. At least not just. It's the product of a loving God who never fails to shape His people into vessels that are worth using. What does He want to do with you, friends? He wants to join you in covenant. He wants to be the threefold cord that Ecclesiastes talks about that binds your covenant together, that makes two better than one, that gives you a return for your work. He wants to be present, intertwined with you in covenant. And it witnesses of Him to the rest of the world. It says something without even using words. Or as one Israeli scholar taught me, he said, witness everywhere you go and when necessary, use words. Said lights don't make noise. They just make an impression on people. I'm not trying to quiet us down. I actually think the church has lost its voice and needs to find it, but I am trying to fire us up. We can boldly love. We can take a shot to the face with a sledgehammer and say, oh, it's God just rearranging my jaw. I didn't like that one anyway. My father suspended me. There's no awe. I deserved it. That young man's face was attacking my fist. And he deserved it. Sometimes conflict is the best thing that can happen to a human being because it's the only thing that gets our attention. If you want to be in the body of Christ and it just be roses and flowers and not be hard and full of tears and not be difficult every day, then you're going to have to join some mythical body of Christ somewhere. This one is a full contact sport. And the armor of God is required. Would you step into the NFL without a helmet? Would you step onto a battlefield without a weapon? See, in the name of Jesus, we have weaponry, but it's not the world's weaponry. You need to get your shield of faith high. You need to get your sword in your hand. You need to be prepared to take a shot. You say, I don't know whether that was God or the devil. What difference does it make? He's able to make it work for your good. How frustrating it must be for the devil that his best attempts to kill me have actually furthered me. How frustrating it must be that if we get thrown out of a building on Eldridge Road, he gives us one three times the size 
on this road. How frustrating it must be that if one landlord says, your rent goes up $300 a month, the next one says, I'll take you as you are, and my house is nicer. How frustrating it must be that we are like anvils that wear out hammers. We can't be beaten. In the name of Jesus, we who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. There is no such thing as a Christian victim. And if we can get that mentality out of us, then you can see who you really are. The gold on the inside will start to show up on the outside. People will know that they've been in the presence of a son of God by your unconquerable smile, by your unconquerable faith. There's no such thing as a Christian pessimist. When we love the Lord, we have a heavenly vision, a starry view. And we don't just talk about it, we aim for it. These two cherubs intersected, and when they intersect, they do something. Verse 9, the cherubim had their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim faced each other and looking towards the cover. Apparently, these heavenly creatures that had been hammered into a three-yet-one kind of shape, its wings touched above the cover, and it cast a shadow. Friends, what was under the shadow? The atonement, the blood of the Lamb, the thing that made us right. Have you never read Psalm 91? Could you put it on the screen for us? What is in the shadow? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. If you engage Him in the process and you quit looking at the hard knocks of life as punishment and start looking at them as making you of His divine substance, your life begins to live in and cast a shadow. You find atonement in the process. He covers you with grace and calls you gold, although you were a thorny acacia tree. And He teaches you to invite others into your life to do the very same thing. Right under that shadow is salvation. Right under that shadow is everything good that anyone could ever have worth having. He protects us there. He reveals His secrets to us there. It is to the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search it out. Proverbs 25, 2. That happens in His shadow. You know who never casts a shadow? Who never dwells in a shadow? Who never lives in the protection of the Almighty? The one that cannot take His shaping. Let's be honest. The shaping we're talking about is really lordship. Some of my favorite Christians are being denounced right now on the World Wide Web. They're being cursed with the name Lordship Christians. <laughs> Curse me with that name all day long. Curse me with it ten times over. Tattoo it on my head. That's just fine. You can call me a Lordship Christian. They say that they've added to the cross of Christ by saying He must be your Lord to be your Savior. I haven't seen anything that ridiculous since I read Fox News yesterday. Fox News had an article about a sexual education program called 
sexual education and abstinence. And then the poster advertising it said, how do you express your love? And then listed 23 graphic sexual acts. Does that sound like an abstinence program to you? How do you express your love? Here are 23 possibilities. And by the way, abstinence is the name of the program. That's how ridiculous it is to say that he can be your savior without being your Lord. It is making him your Lord that causes him to be your savior. Is he your Lord today? I tell you, if he has a hammer in his hand, then I want to be hit with that hammer. If he has a polishing cloth in his hand, then I want to be polished with that polishing cloth. And if I'm badly misshapen, then I hope he loves me enough to lay his hands on me. How about John 14? Turn there with me. Y'all not frustrated with me today, huh? God's got his hammer in his hand and I'm not scared. How many of you believe that you're the body of Christ? Then look at your brother and say, I'm sorry, today I might be the hammer. Tomorrow you might get to be the hammer. Who knows what God will do? His ways are mysterious. One thing I know, Curtis, we getting hammered and in a whole different way than the world does. That's off the chain. Are you in John 14? John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Somebody say that's good. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If he doesn't live in you, then you're an orphan. You might be a son, but you're an orphan because you are lacking and inlaying with gold. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. It turns out that he doesn't just want to stay with you. He doesn't want to just yasab or temporarily live with you. He wants to be permanently intertwined with you. How far are you willing to go? Because if you're willing to be intertwined with him, he says he intertwines you with the Father. And somehow or another, these two living creatures form one big atonement cover that casts a shadow. Tell me that the furniture in God's house is designed poorly and I will laugh at you. He chose his materials. He chose you. He chose them not because they were easy or they were beautiful. He chose them precisely because they show the work of the master's hand. He chose you to display his glory. Oh, let's not resist him. When he redeems us as sons, he inlays us with gold. When he fills us with his spirit and we walk in obedience to that spirit, 
Then the gold is being overlaid as well. The whole world gets to see what is on the outside is simply flowing from what he placed on the inside. You know, we are wood overlaid with gold. But Jesus was gold overlaid with wood. Oh, come on now. They couldn't see who he was until they began to tear at his exterior garment. He too received a hammering. And miraculously the wood was turned to gold. Oh, the resurrection. In John 15, 4, he said, Remain in me and I will remain in you. We have an obligation to have Jesus in us and for us to be inside of Jesus. It's not enough to say, I simply have Jesus in my heart. Are you inside of Jesus' heart? Well, he loves me no matter what I do and where I go. You need to read your Bible better than that. Quit listening to these milksop preachers. A careful examination of the word shows that there are some things God will never be willing to forgive. And chief among them, according to Deuteronomy 29, is the man who persists in going his own way. Today is the day of salvation. If you have Jesus in your heart, then you need to be progressing towards Jesus' heart. Remain in me and I will remain in you, he said. Come on, church. If you remain in the gold, then the gold will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Can you say it's a fight to remain in Jesus? Oh, it is. It's a hammering process. My son likes the UFC. One man gets on top of another man if he's capable of it. And he uses what they call a hammer fist. Oh, God, it's devastating. In boxing, you've got this big pillow on your hand. And two fat guys can kind of lay on each other on the rope forever, 15 rounds, and barely any contact. In the UFC, one would sit on the other's chest and pound him in the forehead. Not an advertisement for the UFC. Anybody that's been in Christ long enough to get knocked silly, long enough to look through the ear hole of your helmet of salvation and wonder if you're the only one that's not wearing it right. You're trying to run with the Lord, but your shield of faith keeps dropping to your feet and tripping you up. You're ready to fight and you raise your sword and it's got a bent tip. God is shaping us. He is not revealing weaknesses in you for the purpose of killing you, embarrassing you, shaming you. He's trying to shape you into something that casts his shadow. And when he does, it's beautiful. Do you know what it's like for me to get a testimony from an employer? I mean, everybody's good in church. To get a testimony from an employer about young men... Usually when somebody says, I want to talk to you about the young men in your church, I'm like, you're looking for Matthew, not me. (laughs) 
Do you know what it's like to get a testimony that is victory? You go back and you start to appreciate every hammer mark. You start to see it as a decoration, something beautiful, a testimony, the kind of thing you would want your house covered in, not something that is shameful. So you got a few hammer marks, friends. It just means God's got us hand on you. In John 17, we're not going to go there, but I would just like to tell you that Jesus spoke of a day when we would be in him and he would be in the Father and three pieces would intersect as one unit. This is the goal. Are you already shaped like Christ? Are you already perfected in the Father's image or might you need some more hammering yet? I say, Lord, use a sledgehammer. Why? Because I'm an impatient man and I would rather get it done today. I don't get to choose the sledgehammer. He might work on me with a finishing hammer because maybe I'm not tough as I think. And maybe today I didn't feel so good and so I said, Lord, please, would you just use the framing hammer? And he picked up the mole. But isn't that his prerogative? Let's quit complaining to the Lord about what our day looks like and start thanking Him for the tool that's in His hand. Oh, I need a better amen than that. The hammering process of constant trouble and constant divine deliverance intertwines shikan permanently with our lives. It overlays us with gold, His divine presence, so that although we are multiples, we are also one. Your every effort must be to pursue him into the shelter, into the secret place, the shadow, so that you can experience the Almighty. Like cherubim on the cover, or maybe Mary during the incarnation, does anybody remember how Christ was formed in her? He overshadowed her. How was Christ formed in you, according to Galatians? It's being formed in you, I would say, as he overshadows you. And he has a hammer in his hands, friends. This is not destructive. I asked you how many of you had built something. When you construct something like this building, which we did, funny thing, the plywood's not already the length you need it. You occasionally have to cut a stud to the length you want it. Sometimes you have to drive a screw through something. Sometimes you have to hit your air conditioning vents with hammers to get them to lock together at three in the morning. To each item, it might feel like they're being abused. To each item, it might feel like they're being cut short. To some items, it might be feel, feel like they're being left out. They were just set in the corner until they were needed. I say God is simply constructing his house. That's what I say. I say he's a master carpenter. It's what his earthly father trained him to be and it's what his heavenly father revealed him to be. He is building God's house. Are you his house? Well, then he has his right to use tools on you, doesn't he? 2 Corinthians 10, 8. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority... The Lord gave us for building you up 
rather than pulling you down. I will not be ashamed of it. Even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I want you to hear this. The Lord has not given us authority to tear you down. So if you've got a dent in you, if a saw is being used on you, you need to know something about our God. It's for pulling you up, not tearing you down. For in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul reminded them, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. How do you become a building, friends? It's not from piling materials together. It's from God using his tools on them and arranging each one in the function that he wanted it. I'm going to tell you something. I had planned to play an instrumental version of Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer. I had planned to read some lyrics to you where he says, I'll be your sledgehammer. You'll be a testimony for my name. Let me be your sledgehammer. Bet you didn't know that was in that song. His mama named him Peter Gabriel. He founded the group Genesis. And his first album was Genesis to Revelation. And probably none of you know that because it wasn't till he left Genesis that they became famous when Phil Collins, a drummer, took over. But we're not here to talk VH1. How does a man have that kind of history and not sing about Jesus? Apparently he didn't accept the hammering. Hmm? A song that could have been about the glory of God is about sexual innuendo. So I, try, I, I elected not to play it for you, not to poison your mind with that. I got to get it hammered out of mine. I want to ask you while we close here. Have you disliked God's hammer? Have you disliked the process that is actually meant to build you? Because it is an expression of love and not hate. I don't hate a two by four that I spent all day trying to shape to make a header. I don't hate it. I'm actually showing value by investing my time in it. And if I choose to nail it to another two by four, it's because I'm trying to make it stronger, not weaker. And if I put three there, it's because it's load-bearing. Hmm? God's working in your life is for your benefit. This year, He is going to put meat on the bone in this church. He's going to strengthen what is already here. And we're going to go and do all the things we've always done. But instead of a very few doing most of the work, this year, the sacrifice of all becomes the norm. Our church will not be based on the generosity of a few, but the sacrifice of every person in it. You know why? You've been shaped by God and you can handle it. When it wouldn't matter to you what Christian you were joined to in this room, you knew you would succeed because you stood together, then we've risen to become something more than a pile of building materials. We are fast on our way and I invite you to stand to your feet and join us in that process.